Blog Talk Radio. Today is August the 4th, 2018. I mean, the year is almost two-thirds over. Where has it all gone? We want to thank you for joining us, however, wherever. And whenever you listen to the show, it's great to have you here. I'm your host, John Robb. Today we have a wonderful show. Two hours uh, we're going to have for you, Suspense Radio. Live on the air, we're going to have authors David Bell coming up first, Michael Brandman, and then Howard Claflin. And later, we are going to, at the end of the show, we're going to play the exclusive interview that we did just this um, Tuesday with best-selling author Laurel K. Hamilton to talk about her latest book. So that'll be exciting to be able to listen to also. I want to remind you all that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. And, of course, you can visit suspensemagazine.com for uh, F- keep up to date on everything that we have going on. Our latest magazine is out. It's on the website. So you can check it out. So without any further ado, I want to be able to bring on our first guest of the show. He is, of course, best-selling author David Bell. His latest book is called Somebody's Daughter. So, David, thanks so much for coming back on. How are you doing? Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's great. Come by. We're just coming hot off the heels of Thriller Fest. Were you able to go to that? I wasn't, I wasn't there. Oh, yeah, I was there. It was great. Um, George R. R. Martin was the guest of honor. Um, I did not see anybody in – well, I'll take that back. I saw two people in costume, um, but that that was um, Daniel Palmer and Brad Parks. Oh, they were were doing their (laughs) sing-along. They did a song, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I hope pictures of that leak so you can see them in their – Jon Snow, Cutian, uh, Daenerys costumes. That was worth going for. Oh, very nice. And that, and that was at the banquet, right? They did that at the banquet. Yeah, they did their tribute song yeah. to George R. R. Martin, and uh, it was it was okay. quite good, quite good. Nice. Yeah. So you got some exciting news too, because your latest book here, Somebody's Daughter, um, is out. And so, well, actually, yeah, it came out July the tenth. So. Why don't you give everybody a little bit about what you got going on? Yeah, so Somebody's Daughter came out on uh, July 10th. It's been out a couple weeks, and um, it's a story of uh, Michael Frazier. And Michael is a a regular guy who has a very good life. He's married. uh, He has a nice job. He has a nice house. uh, Everything's going great in his life uh, until on a hot summer night someone rings his doorbell. Uh, and this is why you should never answer your door if you don't know who's outside. So someone yeah. rings his doorbell on a summer night, and he opens the door, and it's his ex-wife, Erica, uh, who he hasn't seen in a decade. She's his, uh, she, he had a little starter marriage when he was in his 20s. And uh, Erica brings some news. She says, hey, my daughter's missing, and I need your help. 
And Michael says, why should I bother helping you? Go to the police. What do I have to do with this? And Erica then says, because this is your child, Michael. She was conceived right before we split up, and I never told you about her. And now she's been kidnapped, so you have to help me look for her. Um, So Michael now faces the choice of does he go out to find this child who may be his, but who maybe doesn't exist at all, uh, and maybe Eric is actually in trouble because he finds out pretty soon that she's been in trouble with Child Protective Services, so maybe she's hurt the child. Um, Or does he stay home with his current wife and go on with his life and perhaps take the risk that this is his daughter and he doesn't, he just lets it go. Um, So anyway, and it all takes place in one night. The whole book takes place within a 12 hour time span. That's a lot of emotion to have to put together for like, like you said, like your character, Michael, um, to have all this dropped on him. I mean, it could have been Grubhub or Uber eats uh, at his door, but instead it was something totally uh, unexpected. So, when you were plotting and you were thinking about, you know, Michael as a character and you were putting this idea together, how difficult was it or how fun was it for you to be able to say, all right, in a matter of five seconds, I'm going to take this guy's life and totally put it upside down on his head, spin it a little bit, kick him in the groin, and then walk away? Well, that's the fun thing about writing suspense novels is that you are part of the job is to do just what you said, which is to take the kind of books I write anyway. You take a normal person and you do that. You spin his life upside down, you kick him in the groin, not literally, but figuratively. No. Um, and although sometimes my characters they get kicked, literally. Um, but uh, but that's what you do. You you turn the character's life upside down. You know, you shake all the pieces out and you see at the end of the book, what, what pieces still fit together. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the fun part because you, you, are, you are allowed to torture these made-up people. If you were to do this, if you were to torture people this way in real life, you would, you would get in trouble. But in a book, you can, you can turn people's lives upside down and see what happens. And that's, that's part of the fun, and that's part of the fun for the readers to see how all the pieces shake out and who's still standing at the end of the book. But, you know, who else is, of course, extremely involved in this? Uh, because, you know, her life was th- the same way as his new wife, Angela, which is now all of a sudden thrown into, into the same kind of situation. I mean, you know, this is, you know, this is her life, too. So give us a little bit about Angela and, and her character and creation and, and what you wanted her to kind of get through to the readers. Yeah, so the book has three point of view characters. There's Michael, uh, there's his current wife Angela, and then there's a police detective who's one of the other the other point of view character. And Angela is of course in a really difficult situation because she loves her husband. Uh, they have a good marriage. Um, she knows about the divorce. Um, the one problem that Michael and Angela have in their life is that they, they want to have a child and they have struggled to conceive one. Uh, in fact, they have the day that Erica shows up at the door with terrible timing, Angela's ovulating. So like that night, Michael and Angela had a plan 
to do what you do in order to have a child, right? Because this is oh, the, the time be. to you, do it. You, are, you, you literally did that to them? Dude, how cool yeah, is that? You, you, you got to let them finish and then get the knock at the door. <laughs> no, no, no. What else could you what else could you do? I mean, it's, she shows up at the door about 8 o'clock, so it's just right before. Well, you don't have any kids. 8 o'clock is not a bad time to get started. Yeah, I know. It was just it was time. That, you know, they were ready to light the candles and everything, and and then the ex-wife oh. shows up. And what a buzzkill. What a buzzkill exactly. for the ex-wife to show up and say, surprise. You know how spouses love it when exes show up in your oh. life unexpectedly. I mean, that's like yeah. the worst thing you could imagine, right? So, so Angela's in that situation, and Angela... So Michael, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. This happens very early in the book. Michael leaves with his ex-wife to go look for this child. He goes out into the night with his ex-wife to try to find out what happened to this missing... Thinking to herself, okay, there, there are several new realities here. Uh, one is that my husband just left with his ex-wife. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, and two is she has to adjust to the possibility, uh, and you don't know till the end of the book uh, who, if Michael is the father of this child or not, but she has to adjust to the possibility of what if my husband has a child with his ex-wife, but we are not able to have a child together? Uh, and, and what kind of emotional... Uh, upset does that cause for Angela? So uh, the good thing about Angela as a character is she doesn't take it lying down. She, after a little while, she says, I, I've got to go find out what's going on too. And she goes out into the night too. So she's running around in the dark trying to find out what happened to this child as well. So she gets very involved in the case too. So, you know, we have a lot of authors, of course, that, that all that listen to the show and, of course, when when you're at Thriller Fest and people are around, you know, you get asked questions about your writing process and things like that. But the one thing that I'm always interested in is not 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 your process, but more along the lines of your continuation of an author because what was the one thing or the couple things that when you were putting together in this book, you wanted to make sure was different from the last one and then the one and the one before? Even though readers know it's a David Bell book when they pick it up, you need to keep fresh as an author. And, of course, you're always trying to make yourself better. So was it dialogue? Was it scene setting? Was it, you know, what was it? Was it something that you really wanted to focus on more in this book that maybe you haven't explored in previous ones? Yeah, for this one, the obvious thing that's different, so it is still a David Bell book. Uh, I'm putting that in air quotes. You can't see that on the radio, but it's still a David Bell book. So it still deals with with family and domestic suspense and family secrets and things like that. Um, But the thing that's different is really in the structure and the time constraint on the book. Uh, I've, I've written books that take place over a couple of days or a week, you know, kind of that kind of compressed time frame, um, and even sometimes longer, books that might take place over a longer time span. Uh, but this is the tightest time frame. This all takes place in 12 hours in one night, and literally the clock is ticking. When you get to each new section with a new point of view character, there's the time. So you see the clock ticking. You know this child is missing, um, we don't know why she's missing, but we know she's missing. And so as the clock is ticking by during the night, 
you realize the clock is ticking on this missing child. So it's, it's kind of just unfolding in real time right there uh, with these three point of view characters. So that was really the big difference for me was putting this tight time constraint on myself uh, and how do I make that work with three different point of view characters driving all over these towns in this county to try to figure out what's going on? Yeah, and and I think those those kind of stories really intrigue me for the simple fact of because you want to talk about thriller. Of course, we always talk about pace, and a thriller takes you 100 miles an hour and then leaves you hanging, digging on the cliff. Are you going to fall over? Are you going to be pulled back? And that is a really challenging thing for an author to keep that pace at such a high level, but also be able to interweave and tangle into this web because you have a lot of secrets that are in this book and a lot of things that are going to come out because all of a sudden, you know, like the reader's like, well, why does she automatically show up? And well, who took the daughter? I mean, I haven't seen you in a decade. I mean, what kind of person are you? I mean, are you in trouble? Is this, you know, who knows? Is, is this a drug deal gone bad? Is this a sex trafficking thing? I mean, you, you know, Michael really has no idea when he first comes out. So to be able to car, you know, compartmentalize all of those emotions and then try to move forward, that had to be a, a, a tremendous challenge for you to do, though, in the character creation of all three characters, even though one or, you know, a couple of them already have the predetermined path of what they're, what they're set out to do. Yeah, the interesting thing about somebody's daughter is that all of the characters have a secret of some kind. Uh, they're, yeah. they're all uh, related to each other. Most of the characters are related to each other. They're either ex-wife, mother, sister, spouse, you know, whatever, uh, except for the police detective who's kind of on the outside. Most of these characters are connected in some way um, and have had relationships before. And so, but each of them is hiding something from somebody else. So that kind of just raises the stakes as during the course of these 12 hours and during the course of this one night, these secrets start to come out uh, because they all intersect around this missing child. So some of the secrets are 20 years old. Some of the mm-hmm. secrets are a year old. You know, some of the secrets are a few weeks old. Um, but everybody kind of gets caught and has to admit to someone else, oh, yeah, I, I kind of lied to you about that. Or, oh, I kind of – I didn't tell you because I was afraid to hurt your feelings or whatever. Um, and so that all comes spilling out during the night and leads directly to the rev- resolution of what happened to this kid at the end. Yeah, and that's also one of the things is you, you kind of almost, while I think while you know while while you're reading the book, you almost there's a point in the book I believe when 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 you kind of forget that they are looking for a daughter, and then all of a sudden it's like oh that's right you're looking for the daughter, <laughs> and and I think that's a really great attribute to what you've done you've kind of taken the reader like on this other little thing and you're like oh wait a second no no, no they're looking for the daughter. Right. I mean, they, they, the missing child is the thing that starts everything, right. and then it, that just causes everything else to happen. You know, it's like that's, right. the, that's the first symptom of a problem is this child is missing, right. and then you discover all these other things beneath the surface uh, that, that go back 20 years. And, are, and so, yeah, it causes a big mess. That's why I said just don't answer your door. 
None of this exactly. would have happened if he hadn't answered the door. That's why when we bought our house here, uh, you know, the inspector came and he looked at everything and they tell you all the stuff that's wrong. And he was like, you know, your doorbell, your front doorbell doesn't work. You should get an electrician to fix it. And my wife and I were both just like, no, we don't want the front door. We don't want the doorbell to work because then you, then you have to answer it. So just like, don't worry, don't fix the doorbell. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like people coming to my house. I, I don't, right. you know, you, I, I'm just, it, I'm just not a fan in, of that. In this day and age with cell phones and texting and everything, uh, you should know who's coming to your door. They should be able to text you and say, Hey, are you home? You know, I'm going to come by, whatever. Someone who just, they want money or, you know, they're canvassing for a politician Maybe if you get lucky, it's a kid selling candy bars. I mean, like, that's about the best you can hope for is that there's someone out there with some chocolate for you. But otherwise, it's probably bad news. Exactly. Now, the, another thing that, you know, the, and I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, but I, you know, I'll still kind of bring it up is you have written now, um, what is this? This is your, this is your eighth book. Um, this is the eighth and, one with Berkeley, yeah. Yeah, and. The, and the one common denominator that you have, all have is they're all standalones. Is there any kind of plan to, cart, you know, to kind of start doing a series, or is this where you're going to kind of just stay, is just in the standalone category? You know, I, I, I get asked that question, and of course you I do. haven't <laughs> – yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a good question because in the in the mystery thriller world, right? Like you say, you go to Thriller Fest, you go to BoucherCon. I don't know what the breakdown is, but it seems like you know half the people I are writing more, series, half the people are writing standalones. Yeah, I think it's like seventy thirty. I think it's like seventy percent series, thirty percent standalones. I think there's a series okay, there, in there somewhere. Well, yeah. there are so many. I mean, there are so many like you know, cozy mysteries and and PI novels that are series, uh, and spy novels that are series. You're right. So it might be. Heavy. And there are some authors who you're like, you know, it's like, well, I write a series and I write standalones, or I meet right. these authors and you're like, and I'm writing three series, and it's like, when do you ever sleep, right? But anyway, mm-hmm. so so it's a natural question and it's a good question. Um, I I have not gotten close to writing a series just because. The standalones are where I feel feel comfortable. Um, I have discussed it with my agent and, and that kind of thing. And the thing about a series is I think a series is high risk, high reward. I mean if you start a series and, and it takes off early and it does well early, then you can really take that somewhere because I think people like to see a series character evolve. Over the years, like uh, the Dave Robichaux books by James Lee Burke. That's one of the things I like about those books is how that character changes and how his life changes as time goes by. Uh, He's not the same all the time. Um, Or you just love a character like Jack Reacher or Spencer and you're just like, I just – I will read anything about – I would read about Jack Reacher doing his laundry. You know, I would read about Spencer – you know, walking down the street to get a cup of coffee because they're just fascinating characters. So there's a great reward in that. Um, but the risk is if you start a series and then for whatever reason it doesn't catch on, um, then you're kind of like, well, all all that kind of just falls apart quickly. So it, it's a big risk, big reward kind of thing. 
Uh, will I ever do it? I have no idea. Uh, but the standalone seems to be working well for me right now, so that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah. And, I mean, and there's something to looking in front of a blank canvas every single time and having to create something from scratch more than, you know, you know, looking at that canvas that now is 35% complete and you're fixing, you know, and you're doing the 65% of the time. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I'm always on the fence. Jeff and I, Jeff Ayers and I, we always uh, debate this back and forth, you know, standalones to series. And I'm always more yeah. on the standalone side than the series side, just because, you know, my favorite TV shows were always like Law and Order and Murder, She Wrote. And ser- ser- uh, shows that you could jump into series, you know, season three, episode 10, and you didn't care what happened because it was 60 minutes of that show at that time. And when they right, start right. getting too involved with all the other crap, it's just like, I don't care. It's like, I just want to know the case. I just want to know that, the, you know, so it starts. So, you know, it kind of depends on me, but. I do like the fact, and I think what I do like the most about standalones is I know that you have to sit there every time at 0% and get it to 100. And, and that's yeah, what I mean, you've got to do I every imagine, single time you write a book. Yeah, and I imagine – so I've never written a series, so I don't know. Um, and, and I would like to have the problems that some of these authors have, like you know, I'm talking about Lee Child or, or – someone like that yeah i mean but if you're talking book sales sure they, sure yeah yeah i'd love to have his problem uh i'd like to have his height let's face it you know whatever it is <laughs> um but um but i mean i imagine that I, I know for a fact that there are some writers i'm not saying lee child feels this way but there are some writers who over the years they feel constricted like oh i have to write about oh this. yeah like that's why that's why of course famously sir arthur conan doyle killed sherlock holmes had to resurrect him, you know. So, yeah. I mean, there's that thing that you would feel like. I mean, there's 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 just more freedom in the standalone. That if I want to write about a character I've never written about before, if I want to write about a place I've never written before, I can do that. Um, but then, you know, like these series that that become very successful um, and are very well done, then you have got that dedicated, built-in fan base who are going to just automatically buy that book and say, I can't wait to see what this character is going to do. So it's, it's like anything in life. There's a trade off there, but you know, the standalone thing uh, tends to be what works for me tends to be a little more what I like to read authors who do standalone rather than series. Um, Even off standalones and series like Harlan Coben, I tend to prefer the standalones. You know, it's just like, it's just, that's mm-hmm. just my thing is that I like, like you're saying, I like the new start every time, the different characters every time. Um, but hey, it's personal choice that people like. That's true. So, you know, and now that this book is out and, you know, are you doing a lot of um, uh, tours? Are you, do, are, you do, are you doing more virtual tours or are you doing more book signings out there? Well, I've done a little of both. I so the book came out on July 10th, so I immediately went to Thriller Fest, and then so for two weeks I was pretty much on the road, doing actual, you know, meeting actual human beings in person, um, which is always fun. It's very tiring, but it's fun. You get to go to different bookstores, you get to meet people. Um, there there are readers who I interact with online. Then all of a sudden that person shows up at a book signing, and it's like, wow, you're a real three dimensional person, right? Um, 
so that's fun. And then there's lots of uh, lots of virtual stuff, uh, stuff on radio, guest blog posts, uh, all that kind of stuff, posting on social media. So it's been a pretty nice combination of all of the above for the last few weeks. Nice. And, you know, and that's the thing that the ever-changing marketing uh, for the author is changing every day on in on just you know how how to sell more books, how to get more fans, how to get more eyes. I mean, everybody's running seventeen thousand miles an hour to all these different places. It's kind of difficult to kind of wrangle them together to kind of you know uh, you, you kind of find the way. And I think that I always tell people writing the book's the easy part, getting people to read it. That's the hard part. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it is. It is. I I tell my students this. There are so many entertainment avenues that people have available to them right now. I say, like, yeah, you know, if you've ever seen a Jane Austen, what's that? There's oh, distractions. distractions. Yeah. If you, yeah. Right. If you've ever seen, like a, like, a Jane Austen movie, like Pride and Prejudice, what do they do in the evening? They, like, sit in a room and they read or they do needlepoint or they play the harpsichord. And it's like those were the things you could do in the evening. You could take a walk. Like, that was it. Nowadays, people you can watch. There's a bazillion things on TV that are good. There's a bazi- there are a bazillion books that are good. You could watch YouTube. You can do, you know, it's just endless. You can play with your phone. There's social media. So how do you get people's attention and get them to look at your book for 30 seconds? You know, how do they look at your book cover for 30 seconds and make a decision to buy it or not? Uh, so yeah, you've got to hit all the avenues, the in-person stuff, the online stuff, the social media stuff. I think it's all part of the mix. Well, and the best place for people to find you, of course, is to go to davidbellnovels.com and you have all your social media links there together along with, of course, all of your books and the events and everything else. So we want to thank you again, David, for coming on. The book is called Somebody's Daughter. It is out now, whatever format you like. Uh, you can get the book, um, audio, paper, uh, hardcover, Kindle. It, it's available now. So, David, we want to thank you so much for coming on again, man. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy, and we will talk with you soon. Thank, thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So, again, everybody, that is author David Bell, and the book is called Somebody's Daughter. It is out now. Another home run here by David Go to davidbellnovels.com for more information on everything he's writing about. We are going to take a short little break here, and we are going to be back with our next guest. And his latest book is called One on One. It's the latest in his Buddy Steel mystery series, none other than Michael Brandman. So hang on to your hat, and we will see you all in just a second.
So welcome everybody here back after the break. Again, we want to thank you all for joining us, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you with us. Uh, that was a great interview with David Bell. And, of course, coming up at the end of the show, don't forget, we are going to be airing that exclusive interview that we did with author Laurel K. Hamilton about her book, Serpentine. But now we are very excited to be able to bring to you a very, very accomplished author, but not only an author, but film, television, many other different things. Um, when you go to his website, michaelbrandman.com, you will see all the credits and accolades that, that this gentleman has um, attained. And so we're very excited to be able to speak with him here about his latest book called One on One. It's a Buddy Steele mystery book. So, Michael, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? Good, John. Thank you for having me with you. Appreciate it. So, very exciting times. Of course, people might know that, you know, you've done a little bit with Robert Parker and the Jesse Stones and the things of that, but this is your series. This is this is your buddy steel. This is this is the thing that's coming up and it, it comes out August the 7th. Well, everybody know that it's August the 7th and today's the 4th, so it comes out on Tuesday. So, we're right here. But one on one is your latest book. Tell us what you got going on here with uh, your new buddy steel book. Well, uh uh, for those who haven't read uh, the first in the series, Missing Persons, uh, Buddy Steele is a guy with issues. He's a smart young guy. Uh, he studied uh, at uh, John Jay in uh, New York, uh, was an LAPD street cop, and then a, a homicide detective. And just as his career in L.A. was starting to blossom, his father who's a sheriff uh, of a small uh, county uh, north of Santa Barbara in California, is diagnosed uh, with, uh, uh, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, this, he's just been elected to his third term as sheriff. And he asks his son, with whom he has issues, uh, to come and, and watch his back uh, during this very uh, serious time for him health-wise. So suddenly... Buddy Steele, who is a guy who's been enjoying life in L.A., uh, single guy, uh, much more interested in hooking up than settling down, uh, he finds himself in uh, small-town USA in, in Freedom, California, and uh, uh, no sooner does he get there than uh, uh, there's a murder of a high school teacher uh, who is a favorite uh, uh presumably at the high school, and uh, uh, that uh, starts his career in the small town, and he has to deal with small town politics and mm -hmm. uh, the issues uh, surrounding this mysterious death, uh, and, um, and at the same time uh, try and find some uh, level ground uh, on which he and his father can stand together. And uh, that's the start of uh, of uh, this book. Yeah, I love, and you know, with, with so many books and so many things, of course, set in you know big cities, New York, Chicago, L.A. I've always loved the, the the small town feel because, just like you said, small town politics, things aren't like the mainstream. They do things their own kind of way, and you got to kind of get used to that as kind of an outsider that things are going to be a little bit different than what you're kind of used to. And from the reader's standpoint, when you're reading it, it's like, you know, you might be in L.A. or New York or Miami or Chicago, and, and you know, things governmental-wise are much different. When you're in small-town America, no matter if it's the Midwest, if it's in the West, 
there's always that kind of, you know, thing that goes on that it's small time middle America. We do things our own way. And that, and that's the, the fun part when you're kind of reading the book, because that's that extra character. That's that extra scene that's setting that, that you have to put in there. How much thought process do you do as an author to kind of bring out that as a scene, as a character of its own, that underbelly well, feel? You know, um, I've been uh, uh, blessed to ha- having had uh, work with uh, Robert B. Parker. And uh, Bob was not a, only a friend, but a mentor. And uh, uh, as a result of that friendship, uh, Tom Selleck and I uh, have been making uh, Jesse Stone movies. Yep. And if you, you've seen any of those movies, we're, we're about Beat to make all. our 10th. Uh, yeah, I love them. They're thank fabulous. You. Thank you. Um, the town, which which is a Bob Parker town, uh, is a is a major character in the movies, yeah. and the politics of the town and the people in the town and um, that's a small town America. And uh, although Jesse Stone is East Coast, uh, Buddy Steele is West Coast, and the and the morality of the West Coast and the East Coast are slightly different. So yes, the town, the environment, and certainly the local characters, the local politicians. The town council members, the the uh, district attorney, the, the, they're all characters uh, that have different ideas than than Buddy, who is a who is a big town cop. Yeah, and and that's another thing, of course, when you're you know when you're watching the Jesse Stones and the Robert B. Parker um, and reading the Robert B. Parker books, is that dynamic of his ability to kind of have to navigate through all those all those little turmoilistic kind of things that, that kind of happen in, in small-town America. So what are the challenges for you, like, with one-on-one and, you know, coming off of missing persons that you wanted to kind of get through to the reader? Did you have any, you know, challenges like that, that when you were kind of sitting down and you're going from your first book to the second, uh, you know, whether or not you wanted to make it different or changes that you saw in missing persons that you wanted to, you know, move a little around – did you have those kind of conscious uh, thoughts when you were getting into one-on-one? Well, I, th- I thought more about the type of things that might impact a small town. And uh, certainly a murder does. And uh, as uh, Buddy is uh, working his way through solving this murder, and it's um, there's an immediacy to it because of the – there's an aspect of, uh, uh, as we're seeing in in, um, in stories that are breaking, like the the wrestler stories that that uh, where Jim Jordan is sort of uh, indi- yeah. indicates that he knew what was going on. Or at least people say that. Uh, there's there's that element in in this story as well. There were people who who saw. Uh, what this teacher did uh, that was somewhat questionable, but they didn't say anything. Uh, and so that that's an element uh, that that is a part of this mystery. And, and the other thing, I, I don't know if you're as aware of this as I am, but there is certainly here in L.A. where I live, there is a scourge of graffiti. Yes, and there is. You see it everywhere, and it yeah. and it really desecrates the landscape. 
And suddenly in this small town of, uh, of freedom, uh, a, um, a graffiti artist shows up and starts desecrating public and private walls. And he's, he's also been in, in Los Angeles and uh, he signs his work and uh, no one's been able to find him. And the horror of it and and uh, impacts Buddy, and he finds a way to make the penalty so great that uh, that it it helps him uh, locate uh, who this who this uh, street artist is, this graffiti monger. Mm-hmm. So those and, issues. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. No, no, no. no finish. Uh, th- those are the issues I think that you can find everywhere, but they're they're so pronounced in a small town because uh, they're unique uh, to the to the days uh, in in that in that town, whereas in big cities they're plentiful. Yeah, I mean we're, we're even and, and it's true because I live in LA too. So of course you know when you go down. You know, to LA, and, and and they just put up a fence with like you know like a cover. And I just right. noticed this when I because I work in Century City, and there's like a green tarp around this fence, I guess, to not see in. That's all graffitied, yeah. and it's just like it's like really you're doing that too. And yeah, and a lot of people associate graffiti with gang. Now, some of it is not true. Some of it is just art. But when you put that into a small town, it's going to have a much different effect, I think, than when you put it into L.A. Because I don't think anybody thinks there's gangs in Century City, but there's someone who's going around and, and, you know, putting up a bunch of stuff. But the feel of the small town and how they have to handle that in the midst of, you know, this, this high school sports coach who was murdered in his office and everything that's going on, that's a lot to have to take in. And so you as an author have to juggle all that um, – I guess, you know, all those personalities and, and all those things to come together. How are you, I mean, do you, do you plot an outline first? Are you more organic and just kind of let it come to you? How is kind of your writing style um, when it comes to these kinds of things? Well, I, I know the story I want to tell. Um, uh, I don't uh, outline every, it's not like a, the movie. Uh, right. Where, where Tom and I outline every scene of the movie, and we know from beginning to end where we're going. Uh, I, I sort of know the story, and but I, I I allow it to unfold, and I let the characters sort of take the lead as to how it unfolds. It's amazing how in the middle of the night. Uh, the characters that you're writing wake you up and start nudging you about uh, where uh, the story is going. So uh, it's fun. It's as Bob Parker used to say. Uh, it's all about the discipline, of course. Uh, Bob Bob used to write five pages a day, six days a week, and that's the discipline. And and uh, I've been blessed to work with a lot of writers, uh, including Elmore Leonard. I, ma- I made a movie uh, of his uh, western, The Last Stand at Saber River, and Elmore had the exact same discipline. He wrote five pages a day, six days a week. And, and you face that blank page every day, and you sort of allow – you're informed by what comes before it, and that uh, takes you to the, to the next step. Mm-hmm. 
And when you say that next step, that's the kind of that's the that's what kind of pushes you over. That's what kind of gets you going to to get to the end and, and to finally hit that finish line. Yes, uh, obviously. Um, again, just to refer back to the discipline, both mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bob and and Elmore. W- their thesis was you don't go back as you do your five pages a day. You 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 push forward till you get to the end, and then if you need to go back, you do it only once you've gotten to the end of the book. So um, during the during that period, uh, you are uh, I am anyway as the as the writer consumed with the best way to tell that narrative. And uh, because both Bob and Elmore were minimalists and they were uh, very uh, concerned about uh, not making their uh, their narratives too wordy, um, you li- you live with that too. How how, how can you say what you want to say in half the words? And and uh, so so your narrative line, at least for me, I I know where I'm going. I don't always know how I'm going to get there, but uh, I, I managed to to work my way through it by adhering to that discipline. Mm-hmm. Now, is is this something? Is this the genre that you know that that you're going to stay in? Is there, or do you have something else that you're like, you know, are, are we going to see like a one-off maybe of of something totally different just because? It's maybe like you say, a character speaking to you, a story, a plot, something that you want to explore yourself as an author. Um, do you kind of ha- ever have those ideas in mind uh, to maybe step aside from Buddy Steele for a second, write maybe like a one-off standalone about anything and any you know that that just kind of gets on you? Well, I, I love the Buddy Steele character, and I love. Uh, uh, the life uh, that he leads, and uh, I've already finished uh, a draft of the third book in the series, mm-hmm. but um, I'm an old movie guy. I mean, I've produced more than 40 movies. I grew up in the in the theater and in the film industry, and I've been writing a series of short stories that, that uh, have been published on Nicky Fink's uh, Hollywood Dementia website, uh, and they're all based on... Th- on things that really happen, uh, proving that in the in the movie business, uh, uh, truth is a lot stranger than fiction, and uh, and uh, you can't make that stuff up. And uh, uh, people have been encouraging me to write more about the movie business, and it's daunting uh, in in an odd way, uh, because when you think of what the great movie, the great books, uh, stories about the movies are. Uh, they're they're epic, you know. They're they're F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, but um, so yes, I'm I'm sort of haunted by, gee, do I have a movie uh, novel in me? Um, but I love the mystery genre. Uh, I uh, I really um, uh, I read in it and I I enjoy it. I've always always loved it, and uh, um, I'm I'm blessed to have friends now at Poison Pen Press who are supportive and encouraging and uh, uh I'll keep writing in that genre too. Yeah. I but uh, you know like you said I mean you know you you've done so many you know movies and and so many kind of films and and you kind of been 
in that realm for, for so long. Is it tough to switch? Because novel writing and screenwriting are two totally separate entities yes. on their own. Yeah. So is it a tough switch for you when you got to go from one to the other? Well, it, 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 yes is the answer. I, I don't know that I have a simple answer other than to say yes. Um, you have a, you you really are restricted to a very finite uh, period of time in which to tell your movie story, and in uh, uh, although I as I say I'm, I I write as a minimalist. I love going back through and combing out excessive dialogue or excessive uh, descriptions to come up with a kind of fast-paced narrative. Um, it it is a uh, it's it is totally different writing a, a book than than a movie, and uh, you you go beneath the surface in a in a book in a way that you uh, really don't in a movie, or you do it totally differently. So uh, it's every every day is an adventure, John. Every 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 day you face a blank page, whether it's for a screenplay or for. A novel, it's an adventure, and um, you never quite know where it's going. Well, you know, now Tom Selleck would, is Jesse Stone, so he can't be Buddy Steele. Right. But who would you want to see as Buddy Steele? Well, uh, I've thought about that. Um, uh, I would, and I'm sure in, you've been in, asked it a hundred times, but in, I haven't in, asked you. In in today's universe, where uh, you can do uh, um, uh, longer narratives in 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 six or eight or ten parts, and uh, more and more movie actors are coming to the table uh, because of the the different kinds of freedoms you have, particularly in the, in the new movie universe where Netflix and uh, Apple and uh, Google and uh, all these new companies are are players, so I was thinking, well, which of the which of the movie guys would would be interesting as Buddy Stone? Uh, and um, you know, I think the world of Jake Gyllenhaal. I, I watched him grow up as a kid, and uh, he, he played uh, little league with my son. And, and I, I think Jake is a really uh, interesting, thoughtful, um, impressive young actor, and uh, I, I'd love to see. What he would do uh, with Buddy Steele, and and conversely, slightly older, I'd love to see what Jeremy Renner would do with it. So, um, who knows how that'll turn out, or uh, if we'll actually go uh, onto a, another medium? But uh, those are the kinds of actors that that would be interesting, uh, thoughtful actors. Okay, I see that, and you know when. When you're looking ahead in the series, like you said, you just have kind of like book three done, and you know you're 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 kind of looking to see, hey, I wanted to do something, you know, maybe a little different or whatever. What kind of excites you? What energizes you know you to kind of get back to the story and back to, uh, you know, writing the next book? Well, what 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 interested me about the third book, uh, and I, I don't want to get too deeply involved in it but i have always been watching uh how the coastal commission deals with uh issues involving uh access to uh 
beach areas uh, and uh, and how uh, uh, the developers how how uh, we've seen and recently there have been a lot of stories about uh, developers who have gotten their way with the coastal commission. Uh, this guy, the Edge, uh, uh, from uh, U2, is, uh, is has gotten permission to build some kind of huge uh, uh, series of mansions, five or six mansions, on a hilltop that heretofore that, that that looks out on the Pacific and has heretofore not been permitted for any kind of development. So the the machinations of the Coastal Commission and uh, how it impacts what should be available and by law is available to all the citizens of the uh, of the country um, why is it that there are major industry moguls uh, tech industry movie industry how is it they can have mansions that front the beach and not allow the the uh, uh, the public onto that land it's a it's a it's a sort of major story in in this in this state, and it interests me. So, I, I started thinking, well, what if I what what could I write about that? And uh, and there are other things uh, uh, that that uh, that in, since we're dealing with with this state with California, there are other aspects of California that interest me as well. So. Um, it's fun writing about uh, this state and and uh, and taking into consideration the various industries that are as uh, as dominant as they are in this state. Do you do a lot of um, events? Do you like to go out to a lot of the different events and uh, you know whether it's a BoucherCon or you know any kind of the book events or do you perform more of the you know the more of the film events that, that you know where where do you kind of like to go out and hang out and find new fans and and uh, kind of interact with them? Well, you know, I'm I'm happiest at home in front of my computer writing, and uh, which is a different experience than producing a movie where uh, you you're standing in the middle of a field occasionally in the pouring rain and uh, 150 people are looking at you. And say, what do we do now? Um, so I'm happiest not leaving the house. But but in this time frame, this week, for example, I'm going to be in. Um, Scottsdale, Arizona, for a book signing and an event uh, with my publisher there, and then I'm in San Diego, and then I'm in Orange County, and and in New York. So uh, uh, I'll do uh, what I can do, um, but uh, it it always scares me. What scares you? How? Well, just just being out in the public. <laughs> And uh, and speaking, you know, what you don't want to do is sound like a jerk. And I always feel like, I'm sound like a jerk here, you know. No. And so <laughs> they're there to hear you. <laughs> so uh, I, it's very uh, daunting. Um, I've, I've, in an odd way, uh, what I do ha- has always been behind the scenes uh, for years. Uh, I wrote for Johnny Carson. I wrote for Dick Cavett. Um, I uh, produce plays, I produce movies, and uh, and a, a lot of uh, variety shows, but always from the behind the scenes perspective. Now, uh, when I'm when I'm asked to uh, to stand up in front, I think, uh, <laughs> what am I going to say that's going to embarrass me next? Oh, geez. 
<laughs> you can't think that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I can understand. I mean, you know, there's a lot of authors that they they do. They just want to stay behind their computer. They just want to write. They don't, you know, they don't want to get out there and you know and get to that social media because it can be very daunting and it can be because especially in today's day and age, even more social media, you're just not going to get sometimes all the nice people, or you're just going to get you know, and you right. might get who knows what you're going to get. And right. I guess that that's a lot of fear of what am I going to get. And I guess, you know, that that's part of it, but, you know, it's, when you know you're Jenna, the, a lot of the times when you're at the book conferences, they're, they're, it's it's generally pretty tame. It's You know, it's not so much a social media. Uh, you know, people like your stuff. They don't like your stuff. I, I've learned a long time ago uh, uh, that uh, that you, you, you take the good with the bad and you don't get too caught up in either. And so I'm happy in the social media. I like uh, the sort of anonymity of being uh, on Facebook or uh, Twitter or wherever. Uh, That's all fine. It's when you look out and there's a group of people waiting for you to say something, and you know whatever you're going to say is going to be stupid. And so (laughs) that's what scares me. Oh my lord! Well, I guess I guess it's easier to sit there and say, you know what? If I'm going to say something stupid, I'll say it in my book, and then I can just go back and go delete, 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 delete. Yeah. Okay, I got out of my system, yeah. right? Yeah. I know. Uh, sometime this afternoon, when I'm thinking about this conversation, I know I'm going to. Gee, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> I, I, I just, just, uh, hey, I say stupid shit all the time, and I just keep on going. You know? <laughs> what are you going to do? Because, because. For someone to think it's stupid, somebody else thinks it's funny. So I just got to yeah. go with the funny, I guess. So. <laughs> but so Michael, um, again, so you're, the best place for people to find you, of course, is your website, michaelbrandman.com. Yes. Yes. And the book comes out August the seventh. You doing anything big launch party or anything for that, or you just well, gonna sit no. at home and relax? No, I'm gonna be in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, um, oh, poison and, pens right there. That's right, because poison yeah. pens there. And I guess that's that that's a launch thing, you know. The, a bunch of people yeah. are going to come with some expectation that I'm going to have something smart to say. And uh, you are, because you're going to write it down before, and you're going to say this is smart. <laughs> yeah. But you know what you're going to say? You you know, here's what you do. You're going to get up there and you're going to say, look, I don't want to say anything dumb, but the smartest thing that I can tell every single one of you in this room is to buy my fucking book right now. There you go. That's, that's, that, that's, that's the smartest great. thing I'm going to say this whole time. The rest I'm of it is credit, all downhill from there. I'm going to credit you with that, John. Thank you. <laughs> you know, because I put my heart and soul into this book, and I spent the time. <laughs> now I only got five minutes, so I might say some stupid shit. So the funniest, the, the best thing I'm going to say is buy my book, because there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, screw it. Just let it roll. Is how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> You've broken the ice. There you go. Yeah. So, Well, hey, Michael, again, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and we wish you nothing but the best. And good luck, um, you know, on Tuesday with the launch date and, and what you have coming up um, with book three. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. It's great fun talking right. with you. Yes, always. You have a good one. You too. All right, bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Michael Brandman, and his latest book is called One on One. It is book two in his Buddy Steele mystery series. It is out August the 7th, so whenever you're listening to the show, figure out what date it is, and you can go buy the book. Um, But again, make sure you check out his website, Michael Brandman, B-R-A-N-D-M-A-N, just like I'm saying it, just how you spell it, Brandman.com for more information. Check out his 
film, television. Like you said, he works with Tom Selleck on the Jesse Stone series. If you've not seen any of them, check out those books, or I mean, those movies. Uh, fascinating stuff that they have going on there. So we are going to take another short little break. We'll be back with our next author. Um, it is author Howard Coplin, and we are going to be speaking about his latest book that's coming out. Um, I believe it's the I think it's the Spies Gamble. I have to make sure I get my notes right here. So in the meantime, take a quick check, and we'll be right back in a second. Here you go. fantastic hour coming up here we're going to be with uh, author howard kaplan he's going to be on talking about his latest book the spies gamble uh the latest in his jerusalem spy series and then of course at the uh, bottom of the hour we are going to be playing our exclusive laurel k hamilton interview 
uh, that we did on Tuesday and we're able to bring to you here to talk about her latest book, Serpentine. But without any further ado, we want to welcome our guest onto the show, Howard Kaplan. So, Howard, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. And you got some exciting news, too, because your latest book, The uh, Spies Gamble, is out. It is the latest in your Jerusalem spy mystery series, uh, thriller series. So give everybody the, uh, you know, the inside scoop of what you got going on there. Uh, I seem to have a lot of things going on because an old book that I wrote, The Damascus Cover, just opened in theaters in the U.S. and in Great Britain. It's playing this weekend. Right. Now I've got The Spies Gamble, which is a book of reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians. I travel a lot in the area into refugee camps, into endangered Israeli cities from Gazan missiles, and I'm interested in showing both sides and what it's really like living under these conditions for the average person. And, you know, that... um we're get into the Damascus cover here in a second because I, I just found out that that was you know that that was coming out. So I think that that's and that's fabulous that you're able to have that, and that's gonna should really you know jump off uh, the, the series here. But when you're writing about a topic um, that is of course been in the news for so many years uh, for a very long time, of course been in history for many more years than that, how how important is it to you to kind of not really put, I guess, a lot of personal spin opinion on things and kind of bring more factual, um, you know, elements that are, you know, going into the book and, and things of those nature. I've always been intrigued with, you know, with authors being able to the ability to kind of do it that way instead I, of just, you know, doing a opinion piece for, you know, right. 350 pages. What's given me great pleasure is my, these novels, the Jerusalem Spy series have been praised both by the Arab press, the Israeli press, and the mainstream press. Um, basically, I go in, I suppose I have some biases, but I really go in and want to see what's going on in the ground. For example, I have a scene in the novel of an Israeli patrol going through the El Amari refugee camp in Ramallah. And I learn when I'm there both that the Palestinians have monuments throughout the refugee camp with placards of everybody who's died in clashes with the soldiers. And I also understand what it's like to be an 18 or 19-year-old Israeli youth conscripted into patrolling a refugee camp, which is not what he wants to be doing. And they tell me that sometimes the Palestinians throw small refrigerators down on the patrols. And I understand it from both sides. I understand the Palestinian frustration that the patrols can enter their camp and their homes at any time. And I understand it from the view of a young Israeli who's doing military service who doesn't want to be there and is frightened. Mm -hmm. So by going in and looking and talking to people, I somewhat am able to not write from a bias, but from their perspective. Gotcha. That's, and that's got to be, and again, that has to be a very, you know, slippery, difficult slope that, you know, you're going into because, again, it is a very, very contentious topic that, you know, that you kind of get into. So when you're wrapping around a, 
you know, a mystery within, you know, the suspense and the mystery within it. What's the one thing that you always kind of, when you sit down in front of your, when you sit down in front of your, your, your computer and you're like, okay, here comes the next book. What do you want to try to make sure that you kind of get to the reader? Is there some kind of a topic that's maybe different every time that you're like, I hope that the reader really understands this is what I'm kind of really trying to tell them. Well, it's more actually, than just the story. I, I think it's actually a similar theme that seems to repeat itself, which is there needs to be reconciliation, there needs to be coexistence, and if there isn't, the situation is going to deteriorate further and maybe become unsolvable. And so some of my even older books, which warned of this from a few decades ago, have become more popular today than when they originally were published because exactly that, they're seen as a warning of what could happen. And there seems to be a consistency. Another sort of interesting example, I went to the city of Steyrot, which is two miles from Gaza, and in Steyrot, they have a warning system, if you can imagine this, for incoming missiles. You have 15 seconds to get Jeez. to an air raid shelter. It's called Red Alert. You know, it just blasts. So what do they have to do? The obvious first thing is they have to have shelters everywhere. A little detail, this is what I like as a novelist, the little details I learned in the city of Steyrot, you're not allowed to wear seatbelts in your car when driving because it delays the exit to a bomb shelter. And in the playgrounds, they have these huge concrete caterpillars with very wide entrances for the kids to run into when they hear the red alert siren, and then they go in and color on the inside of the walls until it's all clear. Uh, and in Gaza, from the other side, where I also have been, though not for a long time, they sit there and are worried at any moment, you know, an Israeli F-15 or whatever it is can come over, blast what is a let's say, a military post, and at the same time, collateral damage of all kinds of children and young people. So what I find is that I'm not calculating balance. I'm not saying, okay, I have a scene of where the Israelis look bad, or I have a scene, now I have to balance it with a scene of where the Palestinians look bad. I find that the reality on the ground of what actually happens creates a natural balance for both sides. I mean, that's a, I, when, you, when, when you have those elements in the book and those things are real, and some people would be like, uh, you know, can that really be real? I mean, to literally have to drive through a town where they say, do not wear your seatbelt because you need to get out of the car fast enough because of the, of the bombs and the things that are going on, that's something that over here in the United States you know, we don't we, – that just, that just doesn't compute. It's um, very hard and, for us to grasp yeah, you can't how think about small that. this area is. Steyrot, where this I'm talking about now, is two miles from Gaza. Uh, that's why it's only 15 seconds. When I was in Beirut many years ago and I wanted to go to Syria, I was told there's a shared taxi, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Beirut to Damascus. It's probably 50 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, although 
you can't get there. And from the refugee camp that I mentioned uh, where the Israeli patrol was, it's called the Alamari camp in Ramallah, that's 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So I think it is really hard to grasp how close all these areas are to each other and how small the, the geography is because the importance of it dwarfs the actual physical geography. I mean, just just to try to wrap my head around, you know, the, those types of things, and when when you have them in the book, and again, you know, people are looking real fiction, real fiction, and you know, they're you know, they're not really sure how how much of all of those things that you you know that you do put in are actual you know fiction that you just literally made up in your head compared to you know the realistic. Right. What, I, what ended up happening with the spies' gamble, and it wasn't set out to be this way, was that as I was writing it, these fantastically interesting, although maybe tragic events, started happening. So I would end up writing a new scene or the next chapter through that event. So in the spies' gamble, virtually everything is true. All the assassinations, all the runovers, for example – and now with the Internet, you can just get stuff. There was an event where Israeli cadets, which are officers in training, they go to a southern lookout suburb of Jerusalem where all of Jerusalem lies open to the north. And these heights are very strategic because the whole city is vulnerable past them. So they bring the soldiers there both to see the beauty and to – have a look at the history of how many battles were fought there. So what happens in the end? Uh, what happens? While I was writing the book in 2016 or 17, I don't remember exactly where it was calendar-wise, a big truck jumps over the road and smashes through a line of Israeli cadets getting on a bus, and four of them are killed. And it was not clear initially whether this was an accident or a terror event, and I ended up getting, well, it became clear very quickly because I ended up seeing the CCTV footage, which I didn't expect to be able to get. I just found it, and the truck turns around and backs up and tries to hit the soldiers again. And, you know, there's a myth of the Israeli, um, what do we call it, Superman these are all 18- and 19-year-old kids. They freeze. They absolutely freeze. And who runs around to the front of the big truck and kills the driver but the tour guide, who has a pistol in his pocket because that's how you live in Israel. You know, tour guides are always armed. And he has the wherewithal to kill this perpetrator. Then I go to a different extent because what happens next is the Israelis will demolish his family home. That's their retribution. And I just wrote a little article about that. I was thinking about writing an article this morning where I say, um, sometimes thinking you're doing something gives you the illusion of doing something. Meaning, if you blow up and demolish someone's home, and the parents are there and the neighbors see it, it ends up not being a deterrence. It ends up inflaming the situation more, and I think it gives the Israeli populace maybe a placebo that something is being done. 
but it's not being done. So I've always moved. I had another novel, Bullets of Palestine, where I moved Israeli and Arab characters through the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in the 1980s, where there were massacres by the Christian Falange. So I always have liked moving fictional characters through real events. But in this last book, The Spies Gamble, the real events just sort of popped up everywhere. Everywhere I was looking, something spectacular would happen. An Israeli bus went over the road in the rain in the West Bank, and Palestinian villagers went and rescued them. So I said, boy, I'm going to do that scene. And I just worked the characters in it. Interesting. Yeah, I, the the writing process, and you know, not not to turn to the fourth book, and like you said, you know, we're we're gonna get in because your the first book, the Damascus cover, is now being shown, uh, you know, to major motion pictures, so it's out. So when now you, when you're looking, you're gonna have many more fans. You're looking into book five, and you probably are already writing it or getting into, you know, starting it right now. With the creation of the Damascus cover now being on screen. Does that change your philosophy or your approach of how you're going to start doing the series in the future? It actually changes nothing other than okay. gives me maybe a little bit of a larger footprint, a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been traveling in the Middle East and writing for, you know, a few decades. I have fairly, I'm sort of in I've strong beliefs in what I'm doing that this run for reconciliation. In fact, I'll segue a little bit, to the, and I'll tell you, John Hurt is in the film. And it's his last Tremendous film. actor. Right, the great British actor. And the following story I heard at the Boston Film Festival when we showed the film last year, uh, told by the director that I didn't know. Uh, Hurt read the script, and then he asked to speak to, to the director. And he told the director, I don't think your movie is done. And what Hurt wanted was the notion of reconciliation clarified, even greater. And the British PR people put out a wonderful 40-second second, uh, interview with John Hurt from the set. Obviously, he's passed away since, where he talks about that the cry, he says, the cry of the movie is the two head guys saying to each other, how long can we still do this. How long can we continue doing this? So that, you know, I never I didn't meet Hurt. I was on set but not during the time he was there. And his parting words on this film, which is his final film, is exactly what I'm trying to do with all the novels. So the approach is not going to change. Everything is still going to be run like you said, like, like like the same thing. But are you going to let the social media, the reviews, you know, do those things impact your writing? Because now that everything is so instantaneous and you can see reviews today, as soon as someone picks up the book, they can write a review, boom, you see it tomorrow. Do right. you let any of that kind of influence you know, your writing ability, how you, you know, want to reach more fans or anything else, or are you just like, look, I, I, this is my story, I'm putting it on the page, be damned. Well, I, I pay attention to what reviewers say. For example, somebody wrote, uh, the Damascus cover was really written when I was in my 20s, and I was, had a lot of anger about a lot of different things at that time, and it's a fairly violent book compared to 
my other books that I would say each book probably has less violence in it. So somebody on Amazon where the average rating is like 4.3 gave the book a 3 and said it's too violent. And I wrote back you know, a, a reply and I said, I agree. I wouldn't have done it that way today. Uh, so I'm, I pay attention to those kinds of things. And the publisher wanted some of the violence put up in the first chapter to hook people in. And I mm-hmm. probably wouldn't do that today either. Uh, so I'm happy. I like to see what reviewers uh, say. And it, what, it, nobody ever makes any comments about the thematic. Well, some of them do. Some of them say, you know, very anti-Arab things, some of the Jewish reviewers. And I sure. just tend to ignore that because I understand that that's, you know, part of our fractured landscape now. There's a lot of extremes on both sides. Uh, but generally speaking, because I'm writing, I, I, I'm almost surprised how little criticism I get from the extremes of both sides because they're looking at the human beings of the story. They're looking at Palestinian villagers coming in where there had been assassinations by Israeli right-wingers in that village, you know, people driving through and shooting people years before, and now the villagers come in and save some settlers' children from a burning bus, which is, a fic- which is both a real scene and a fictional scene. In other words, it really did happen. I just used the characters from my novel, not the people in the real event. And people say, I get reviews these days more like it's thought-provoking. They're making, you're making me consider assumptions that I've held for a long time. And the assumptions are either that the Israelis are all bad or that the Arabs are all bad. And I want to challenge those assumptions on both sides, although I would say the politicians on both sides are pretty awful. And I think that's part of the conundrum. Yeah, I I can definitely see. I mean, again, you're going to get – you're going to – you're definitely in a world that you're going to get a lot – there's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad, let's face it. And – and that's part of the thing, you know, when I was, I mean, coming up next, it was, you know, we, I interviewed Laurel K. Hamilton, and she said, you know, she doesn't read any of her reviews. She looks at none of that stuff, and she doesn't care, because she goes, what am I going to get out of a bad review? And she goes, a lot of times, people just write stuff that have nothing to do with the book. They just want to write stupid crap. She goes, that doesn't do anything for anybody. And, it, and you know, and it can kind of be the same thing. Like you said, you know, no one, they might not be talking about your book. Maybe they just don't like the topic. And so they thought, oh, well, let's just give this a bad review. You know, I'll I mean, what I found just people got to grow the hell up, I think. Yeah. The, I don't get too many. Well, I get some bad reviews. I shouldn't say that. Uh, but the film particularly engenders all kinds of people coming out of the woodwork. You know, it just has, there's some awful reviews, there's some great reviews, there's some reviews that make no sense whatsoever. There's a lot of reviews about this isn't James Bond or Jason Bourne, and we didn't attempt to do James Bond. My novels aren't like that. I'm closer to the spy who came in from the cold than I am to Mission Impossible. Uh, and they seem to really come out of the woodwork for movies. So it's a bigger problem there. Mm-hmm. And I understand someone not reading them because I think if you're a writer, particularly you've been doing it for a long time, you have a vision. And unless someone really 
can steer you. Even this woman who said to me the books were too, the first book was too violent, but I'd already gotten there. I didn't have a eureka moment. I thought that, you know, a long time ago. I have trouble reading it a little bit. I said, you know, it's a little too much. And the violence doesn't translate over to the film. They filmed it without it. So it didn't need it. Oh. Well, that's interesting. I didn't, uh, and, and now, when, when they were doing the Damascus cover when they, and, and you knew that this was kind of going to be done, how involved were you in making sure, you know, or were you involved at all in trying to make sure that, you know, the, the movie was at least a little, you know, close to the vision that you were hoping for um, if it ever did make to film? Because a lot of people don't realize, even though, you know, you're the author of the book, you might have had zero say. I mean, I just interviewed Steve Alton, who wrote Meg, and that movie comes out, you know, nationwide this weekend. And he was like, yeah, he goes, I had nothing. I had no say in anything. I mean, whatever Legally, they said. right. Here you go. Unless you're somebody like J.K. Rawlings, or the woman who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, in which you have so much clout as a writer, typically you have no say, meaning they buy the motion picture and television rights from you. You retain the book rights in all its forms, and they can then do what they want. In this particular case, because the director had a vision that was pretty similar to mine, I wasn't hugely worried I went to the set for 10 days out of two months in Morocco. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's not bad. Jonathan, no, Jonathan Reese Myers plays the main character, and I saw him again about two weeks ago. He's just a fabulously powerful and passionate human being and actor. He's not very different in person than he is on the screen. He has those same oh, passions. Cool. And he's just a great guy. He's just, you know... Uh, he has his ups and downs personally, but on the screen, he's always 100%. It turned out, again, unexpectedly, that the director approached me uh, for some help in the editing phase, even though he wrote the screenplay. It turned out they had some you know, feedback that the beginning was a little slow, and I made some comments to him, and he was one of these wonderful people who's not defensive, like a lot of people are. And he says that makes a lot of sense. And he ended up taking all the most of the suggestions that I made. I made a number of them. I think they improved the film. And he and I are very close. We talk regularly. So it just, you know, happens in all different ways, though they have no legal obligation to show me anything. Yeah. But you know what? But when it turns out, and you're like, ah, you know what? They they did a hell of a job. And because you know, you've seen some of the authors, of course, that come out. I mean, Stephen King and Clive Custer, just to name it two, who basically told their fans, "Don't go see this movie because it sucks right. so bad away from the book." I mean, he did that with The Shining. Custer did it with Sahara. Um, right. But you know what? I but when you're able to know, see that the vision works, yeah. it's good. Right. And I know Custer. We spoke on a program together once years ago. He's given me a quote for the books. He's he's really a yeah, wonderful human being. And Sahara, Sahara was an awfully made film. He just got unlucky. You know, it's just a crapshoot. You yeah. know, you give them the rights, they tell you all the right things, then they go and do what they want. I just, uh, maybe we're fortunate too, that the film adaptation, even with these big stars, is a small $5 million film, although it looks shot in Morocco. It looks fabulous. So these kind of people are not just 
well, we'll knock this big film off and then we're on to the next one. They they spent a lot of time getting the Damascus cover to work, and I think they have. Nice. So, Howard, the best place for everyone to find you is just howardkaplanauthor.com. That's where you have all of your news, your social media, everything else. You're going to be out at any events? You're going to be uh, out where anybody can be shaking your hand and uh, getting your autograph Uh, for the book? uh, Not right at the moment. I I, I had a couple at theaters when the film came out, but those have just passed. They're now onto the U.K. distribution. So, but... You know, on the web page that I have, the next time I do something, there'll be some film festivals in particular where, you know, I come with the books, too. They just seem a good venue uh, awesome. to both do movies and film together. Awesome. Well, hey, we want to thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you on. And, again, congratulations. The Damascus cover, uh, that movie – uh, with, of course, adaption of your book and, and the Jerusalem Spy series with book number four out, The Spies Gamble. So, yeah, you got a lot going on. Take a <laughs> breath. Relax. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Maybe I'll go out for a coffee now. There you go. All right. You have a good one, Howard. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. The Gambini, that is author Howard Kaplan. Make sure you visit howardkaplanauthor.com. The book is called The Spies Gamble. It's the latest in his Jerusalem Spy series. And the Damascus cover, the first book in the series, is going to be a movie, which is out. So um, check, you know, if you can find it, check it out. I'm sure it'll be on DVD and you'll be able to stream it and things like that and coming up. But, you know, put that on your radar to, to look at and, and uh, make sure that you have that um, uh, there and, and check out Howard's work because it's, it's, it's outstanding. So here we go. We are now at the bottom of the hour. We are going to be playing our interview uh, that we did again on Tuesday. Um, just to let you know, just a quick setup for this real fast, because uh, it, it's going to go on for 30 minutes, is that I was sitting in my car in the form parking lot getting ready to see the Hollow Notes and Train concert when I conducted this interview with Laurel Hamilton. So just keep that in mind. Um, you know, I'm in the car talking to Laurel Hamilton, waiting to watch Hollow Notes and Train at the form parking lot. So... Here we go. What you've been waiting for. So, first I want to say, Lowell, thank you so much for joining me. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with you again and to talk about your uh, 26th, I can't believe, full-length novel now <laughs> in the Anita Blade series, Serpentine. So, tell us a little bit about what you got going on. The book comes out August 7th, so anybody who's listening before that, uh, you can pre-order it. If you're listening after, go buy the book. So, give us a little about what you got going on. Well, uh, thank you for having me uh, tonight, John, and um, Serpentine, yeah, two, I know, just to say 26 books in a series that I never thought I'd get here, how very few authors get the, get the privilege of being mm-hmm. able to write in one world that long, so I'm just excited about that alone. Uh, Serpentine is a, it's a standalone mystery. Because that's really, I write, I say I write suspense, um, paranormal thrillers is what I say when people ask what I write. And the reason I say paranormal thrillers instead of urban fantasy is because, generally speaking, most of, each book is a mystery, but also uh, my, my violence content and my, my romantic content is, are both about equally high. And um, that is unusual 
in in the genre. So I started saying paranormal thrillers. Serpentine is no different, um, except that now we have wedding bells, but not for Anita, not for my main character. We finally had Edward, who started the series as the an assassin who was so good at his job that he was bored killing people, so he started to kill only vampires and shapeshifters, people who could kill him and really tax his skill level. I mean, I really didn't think he would be a major character or even a returning character. And now here we are, 26 books later, and uh, Anita has is going to be the best man, quote-unquote, in his wedding, and he's finally walking down the aisle with his uh, the lady that he has been sharing a home with, and they have two children from her first marriage. So he's become a family man. Who knew that was even possible? Um, and uh, Anita uh, also is has serious romance in her life, and one of her serious sweeties, uh, Michael Callahan, is the head of the Coalition for a Better Understanding Between human and lacanthropic communities, and he has come across a type of lacanthropy that he has never seen, and no one else has either, either Anita or Edward, and it is a frightening, frightening family, uh, like a genetic defect in a family, and when I say defect, you don't want this to happen to you. It's it's one of the few things I was researching that scared me, um, researching Greek and Roman myths, and how the gods would curse people and turn them into monsters. Um, I thought, well, that's pretty frightening. What if we make that modern day? And so I did. Yeah, and, you know, mythology is always a great place to kind of get ideas because you're right, they are so – there's so many stories and so many ways and tangents you can go off on that. And that's one of the things, after 26 books, I mean, you have to try to make something – a challenge and interesting to you to want to write. Otherwise, the book will come off kind of boring, and I think fans kind of know that. So is that one of the ways that kind of keeps you energized in writing Anita Blake books? I've always done serious research um, for everything. Um, from, I, I mean, uh, for my shapeshifters, I have a degree in biology, which is mm-hmm. it's nice to have a science background when you're writing the monsters because you can it helps you add reality to them. And if you're going to ask your reader to read really fantastical things, the more you can ground it in reality, the better. Because they'll believe, they'll believe that extra step if you have the reality as close to solid as possible. Um, so I've always done research, and I've always uh, had an interest in mythology. I mean, I got my first Greek and Roman mythology book, East Hamilton, back in, back in junior high. So this has always been interesting to me, but I just had never put it into the Anita books before. And I thought, well, you know, I haven't done that. So let's, let's go back and re-look at some of those myths and stories. And I thought, you know, this stuff is pretty scary, actually. <laughs> exactly. And, and so... Go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I mean, I was going to say because, you know, when you do a lot of research, but the other aspect of your book, of course, that would be, I guess I would say, extremely fun to research is, you know, the sexual aspect that you have in your books also because, you know, they're very, um, you know, I mean, they're very sexual in in a way. You have a lot of, you know, romantic things going between characters. Uh, You know, there's always a lot of of interaction that goes on there, like you said, 
you know, uh, you know, the marriage that you have coming up and, and everything that's going mm-hmm. on. So, I mean, it's a lot of real life in a fictional setting. And now that you've grown with them for 26 books and you kind of look back from the beginning, I mean, do you ever kind of look back at book one and then go to 26 now and say, what an what a incredible journey this has been? Well, of course. Of course. I, I mean, Anita, me and I both started out the series at 24. Uh, I made my characters exactly my age for years. And, uh, but the world time frame wise has gone much slower for her than for me because, one, because I had, at one point, I would set like three to four books per year. If a real life police officer, no matter, or, or, or even, even soldier had that many near, near death experiences every year, you, you couldn't possibly do it. You, you, you'd be in therapy and, and never want to go back to your job. But, uh, you know, in fictional, you can take it slower, and so it doesn't catch up with you quite quickly. Um, right. Yes, when I started up the series, Anita uh, even says in the first book, I don't date vamp- vampires, I kill them. And I really planned on not doing uh, sex on stage. I, I never planned to have a romance on stage. I was, I went to that kicking and screaming, actually. But when I finally got, like, six books in and realized that I had happily written, you know, violent crime scenes and in detail needed to solve the mystery, but when I came to having my main character have sex with someone she cared about after books and books, I was very uncomfortable with it and wanted to do the 1940s hand in the sky. And I said, and I thought, what does it say about me as a person that I'm more comfortable with violence than sex on paper? Well, one, it says I'm very American. But um, oh, God. Uh, I thought, I don't like what that says about me and my writing. It, sex between people who care about each other should be at least as important to the, to the story as the violent crime. Because because where we go, and I've been very lucky and interviewed people who really are police officers, who have taken lives in, in the line of duty, and is both uh, in police officers and as uh, military personnel. And I've been very graced and blessed with their stories, and I felt that it would do that an injustice if I didn't show that you also renew yourself with your family, your friends, and your intimate connections. It, it it just seemed like writing only half a life if I didn't explore it. Now, I also made a deal with Anita after the traumatizing death that, in, in case the readers have not read Guilty Pleasure, somebody dies that, that Anita felt close to in the very first book. And she was traumatized as a character. And I promised her as, an, as a writer, as a creator, that I would not kill anybody else off that she felt close to. Little did I know that her, her way to fix that was that she would feel close to everybody. And I really think that for several books, one of the reasons that she had romantic uh, something, entanglements with so many people, was so I wouldn't kill them off. And I finally had to sit down with myself and talk, talk to myself, my muse, and my character and go, look, this was unrealistic. I didn't understand what we were doing. It's 20 books later, take a deep breath. And um, I, I broke that, I broke that 
uh, trend or promise in the last book, which is Crimson Death. And so when she was close to did die. And it was traumatizing, but it was necessary. And it was necessary for the story. And so now, now hopefully we can not keep collecting people. Um, it's not like, you know, stray cat followed me home. It, it, it takes time, energy, and effort. You can't date this many people. Uh, you just can't. It's, it's not possible. You, you might be able to have sex if you were into casual sex to that degree, but you can't date them and take care of their emotional needs. That's not possible over a certain number. Um, I, I speak from experience. You just can't take care of the emotional needs of that many people. I think she's at one point was over 10 people. And it wow. just doesn't, it, it's not possible. You can't date that many people. Not enough hours in the day. That's um, true. So, and, you know, uh, and 24-year-old Anita is going to be much different emotionally uh, how, you know, how she is than 46-year-old Anita. I mean, that's, that's just the natural progression. We don't act the same way that we did when we were 24. She's in her, she's in her early to mid-30s now. I'm starting to get vague because people are taking it so seriously, wanting to know her birth date and things like that, and I'm going, no, I, I'm trying to keep it kind of vague. Um, uh, so it's, it's and, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, it is interesting because you do, you do change in over a decade. You, you change and you grow as a person. You don't stay the same. And I know I didn't. I am a much different person than I was in my early 20s. Right. But it's, it's, this is not where Anita saw herself go. This is not where I saw her, her go. But then I changed a great deal and didn't, everything didn't progress the way I thought it was going to either. So I think that happens to most of us between 20 and 30 to 20 and 40. We get some surprises in there. Now, there are some people that don't. Their, they, their life seems very consistent. Mine has not been. So, um, uh, Anita reflects that and reflects some of the changes in the lives of um, people who have helped me with research and who have been on the job. As far as there comes a point between 10 and 20 years on the job when that you start out wanting to save the world and you end up by just wanting to save as many people as you can, to do as good a job as you can, but at the end of the day, your priority begins to go home alive to your family and the people you love. And that's just a natural progression as we age. And and realize that, one, you can't save everybody. And even if you take this bad guy down, there'll be another bad guy tomorrow. I wish it didn't work that way. I really did. But it does, it just, you can't save the world once and it stays saved. Exactly. So eventually you find a life and people you love to come home to. Exactly. And that is what Edward is doing in Serpentine. He's finally walking down the aisle with Donna. And um, and by the way, may I just say that Edward shows her off screen from me or Anita. I did not know she even to this character until he introduced Anita to her. In book, uh, in a sitting butterfly, book eight, uh, book nine. Hmm. And, and you know, and that's the fun part, I think, for being an author, as like you just said, 
you didn't know the direction it was going to go. And then it goes into totally different directions. And, and that's, and that's a fun thing. That's something that you, I think that that is fun for an author to kind of see how that goes. Because if you, if, it, if, if anything is outlined out and it goes all that way, you know, I mean, you, you can kind of miss out on things that, that you're not listening to anymore as an author. Well, there, there are two big main camps of, for writers, and some people are big outliners, and their books work fine for them. And then there are those of us that are character-driven more than plot-driven. We have our plot, but if our characters make choices, we will, I, I will throw out my plot completely and start over if my characters insist. And um, that that happened that has happened in several of the Anita books where either uh, one of the it's not always Anita sometimes it's a minor what I call a minor major character there are no truly minor characters that are important to your story but they'll make a decision or they'll and I'll go you know that is a better idea or wow you guys are better at this than I thought uh, my villain's not up to this I need a better villain or I need to let you get away, and then I need a different plot for the last third of the book. I've done that more than once. But I believe that, for me, if there's no surprise in me, then I don't think there's any surprise in the reader. Um, If I'm having a good time, chances are so will the reader. If I'm not having a good time or I'm not emotionally invested, then I don't see how the reader can be. Exactly. Exactly. And I hear that a lot from a lot of authors, too, that, that I've always interviewed. But one thing I'd like to ask also is, if you could tell your younger writing self anything at all, what would you tell them? Huh. Um, Don't get in this business? No. <laughs> Be prepared. Um, no, I, I don't know what I would say because I didn't give up. I was incredibly tenacious, or I wouldn't be here. Um, you know, Guilty Pleasures was rejected over 200 times before it sold. So, you know, um, I, I certainly dealt well at that point with uh, rejection. <laughs> yeah. um, or wow, going. 200? So you've had 200 rejection letters on Guilty Pleasures before it ever got published? Yes, before it was bought. Yeah. Wow. Remember, remember, I wrote this in the late eighties. Buffy, the vampire, but Buffy hadn't even been on, so nobody knew what to do with it. Um, The editors at Lincoln that published horror thought it was fantasy. Fantasy thought it was science fiction. Science fiction thought maybe it was mystery. I even had editors recommend other editors at other houses to look at it. Some of them loved it, but they said mixed genre doesn't sell that there's no way to market this, and so they passed on it because they couldn't figure out what to do with it. Um, I was very lucky that Penguin Putnam, now Penguin Random House, took a chance on, you know, me. I had one novel published with uh, someone else. It was more traditional Elves, Gorbs, and Dragons, night, uh, but called Night Fear, and the sales, like most first novels, hadn't been that great. So they took a chance on a book that they didn't know how it would do, and the rest of they say is history, but history doesn't happen until after you succeed the first time. Um, and I am I have, I have now been privileged to sit on panels at conventions with with six to eight authors at a time 
I mean, I mean, at least six other authors in in this genre um, who have similar, you know, they they've taken their own twist on the idea of modern day with with paranormal and the supernatural. And I sat there on panels where I'm thinking, and I was told there was no market for this. And here we are. So Thank I think God, here we are. I know. I, I think it's amazing. And that's what perseverance does for you. Uh, for me as a young writer, um, I would more say, you know, things are, you're not going to remain the same person or the same writer that you were. So just take a deep breath. It'll be okay. Ride the change. But other than that, I, I don't know. Because I believe very sincerely that if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, you'd screw things up. <laughs> I, I know. I just believe that you would say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and somehow you would change your own face. I, I, I'm, I'm really one of those people that believes that timelines need to be not messed with. I love Doctor Who, but no, no, no. Please stay away from my timeline. Thank you. And Doctor Who, and Doctor Who's coming back out. I just heard with another new Doctor. So I, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, uh, a woman this time. Yes, that's right. A woman Doctor Who for the first time. I used to watch him when he was way back when. I think I was like 10, 12 years old maybe on CBS, but I haven't seen it in quite some time. My daughter got into it. She's 21. She got into it about six or seven years ago, and it just it just massively changed with many different Doctor Whos, and I thought that was pretty cool, too. Yeah. Uh, I, um, my husband and I both love Doctor Who, and, and we were really excited about the new Doctor, but I just love that what started out as a British children's show um, has so much uh, so much longevity and so many serious topics that they can cover. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. So in today's day and age, with everything so fast and in your face and you can see everything right away, do you ever read any of your book reviews? And if they do, do you ever let that impact your work? Uh, never read the comments, never read the reviews, um, so don't, you know, don't, just don't. Um, That's I what you can tell your younger self, don't read your reviews. <laughs> uh, my, my, my younger self, there was no internet. There was no That's internet true. back then. So, yeah. you know, what, what reviews? Um, I have to say that, that the internet is both a wonderful gift for a writer and a wonderful and a horrible curse at the same time. One, it is the it is the most distracting thing in the world. If you want to procrastinate, the internet is the perfect tool for that. Um, uh, the other thing is it's it's just rife with lazy research. People will go on the internet and not double check the facts, take it from one one factoid out there and not double-check it. That's lazy research, and you don't know how well that article was researched to begin with. So please don't do that as writers. Um, but the fact that, you know, I can go online for something else. I'm not even I'm not even on as Laurel K. Hamilton. I'm just fooling around the Internet. I'm looking at stuff that I enjoy. And suddenly somebody recognizes my name, and they go, oh! And they have to. They feel that they have to direct me to a review or to a, an article about my stuff. And, you know, I was having an okay, I, you know, I was having a good day. I was having an ordinary day. 
And then suddenly I have to be made aware that I am who I am and I have the job I am. And uh, I think Noah, I think most of us get on the Internet to relax. That was the idea anyway. Or to look something up. And suddenly if you had your job shoved in your face, and and most people don't want to give you the good reviews. They want to connect you to the bad ones, the ones where people are complaining. And how would you like to be tooling around the internet and somebody says, here's your, here's that review from that boss three jobs ago that hated you. Remember that yeah. one? Uh-huh. And that's what they want you to see on the internet. That's how it feels. Because often, often it's not even current. It's, it's, it, because everything floats around the internet forever. Nothing ever really goes away. Nothing goes um, away. So it's, so no, I do not. Every once in a while, my media person or my editor or my agent will go, this is a good review. I really think you should just look at it. But I have somebody vet it first. I don't look at it first. Because if it's a bad review, then, I mean, I mean, what good is that? And if you want right. to, does, 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 does it impact me? Um, I find that most of the bad reviews uh, seem to be more personal attacks than actual critiques. And uh, if if the uh, if somebody doesn't like my books, then then that is their privilege. That that is what's called you know the freedom of choice. You can choose to read my books or you can choose not to. There are a lot of great books out there and great authors. I'm sure if I don't fit your needs or your preferences, you'll find somebody else out there who is. Um, but one of the interesting things uh, in the last few books is that a lot of complaints are that there's too much poly, too much polyamory in the book. And I'm, I'm polyamorous. That is my sexual preference, which means to love more, and it means serious relationships. It doesn't mean you sleep around. Everybody knows about everybody. You introduce everybody, everybody shakes hands and talks and negotiates how it's going to work. Um, and it's, it is, it is my, it is my lifestyle, it's my sexual preference. And if I were, if I were gay, I don't think somebody would sit there and go, there's too much, you're, you're too gay in this thing. Would they really say that to me? But polyamory, being poly is not taken, it does not seem to have the same, um, people still totally free to tell me that, that my lifestyle, my sexual preference is bad. And that they don't want to read it anymore. And that is their choice. But it just makes me think, it, you don't ever see me going, well, your book is too heterosexual. Well, actually, maybe they do. I don't know. But, uh, they don't say to me. Because, you know, I'm poly, so that makes something else. But it's been interesting to me that that's a lot of, a lot of the complaints. And I don't know what to say to that. I'm not going to apologize for my, my lifestyle choices. What am I supposed Absolutely to say Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, that's, uh, you, you would hope in today's day and age that you wouldn't have to put up with that. Unfortunately, I think in the last year and a half, it's become a lot more, and I think that that's and I think that that's really bad. No, that, no, it, it has not gone up a single iota for me. This has been a constant for me. No. 
Okay. This is yeah. an accomplishment for you. And you live in that world more than I live in that, so you would know a lot better than I would. Yeah. I, I actually don't think, I don't think that the people that are complaining about Turner Astros has really gone up. I think what's gone up is the people on the Internet that actually don't care one way or the other, but are jumping on the troll ship. Yeah. The troll, the troll bandwagon, because there are people out there, and unfortunately there's a lot of people out there apparently, that just like to make people feel bad. That seems to be what they feed on. They feed on trying to make other people feel less somehow. And it is that will make themselves feel better about themselves. And you never gain anything. Uh, you, your self-esteem doesn't go up if you try to make other people feel bad. You cannot get a positive out of a negative. So if you're being negative, it's not going to make your life better. It's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to make your job better. It's not going to make anything better. If the people being negative would spend that much positive energy on their own life, their own dreams, their own hopes, think how much they could accomplish. But instead, they choose to use it negatively to try to make other people feel bad and cut other people who are accomplishing things down. I don't understand it. Well, I'll tell you, we got you had the home run on Serpentine. So you hit out of the park with this one. <laughs> and, and, and we want to, you know, and it's just great uh, to be able to see. Because, you know, again, there are a lot of authors that do have a lot of books in their series. And in 26 books in, you're still hitting home runs and grand slams. That is an amazing accomplishment to not just your writing and just, you know, your imagination and the fiction and everything that you've been able to build. So, you know, thank you so much from our point of view, from a fans and arena's point of view, for giving that to us because that's very important um, that we're well, able to experience that and have that with you. Oh, thank you very, very much. That means a lot to me uh, because I am still having a wonderful time and loving my characters and my world, and it's wonderful that, that I can still hit it out of the park. Yeah. And you're going to be in my neck of the woods, aren't you? On August the 6th, you're going to be giving, um, I believe, uh, a talk. Uh, August 7th, isn't it? Well, 7th, the book comes out. I think it's in 6th in L.A. You're going to be, I'm going to try to see if we can get down. It's a little further. I think you're in Orange County. I think you're in Huntington Beach. I saw. I, I am going to be in Huntington Barnes Beach. Noble, I think, in Huntington Beach. Is it August 6th? And here, here's where I, I totally go, I don't know. Is it on the set? I know. I'll don't don't let you know. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll believe you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying I to – well, I, I think it's the sub because, because – is it – Well, that's the last thing. Yeah, the sub is the last Yeah, and um, – It could be I the last thing. I will be entering to beat on the set. You're right. Yeah. There I am. See, I know my neck of the woods. I'm going to try to you make it down just a little further. So hopefully I'll be able to come down and actually, you know, shake hands with you in person. Um, if I can make it down that far, that would be great. That would be – I would love to see you at Honey's Beach on the 6th. Um, yeah. And see you in person. Just on the phone. And so just to wrap up, the best place to find you, of course, is your website, littlekhamilton.com. That's where everybody mm-hmm. can find out all about the books and everything that you got going on. And – 
so, of course, uh, you're working on book 27, I take it, right? Because everybody always says, oh, great, this is good. Now, what is the next one coming out? I mean, that's the next thing you always hear. They, they, so, they, really, they really do. People, yeah. They really do. Some people will actually uh, get the book uh, the day it comes out, and they will stay home. And by the time they see me that night, they will say, when's the next book coming out? I go, well, you're holding it. I go, no, no, we read this already. When's the next one? Yeah. I and wish like, I could I'm write as fast, as fast as everyone reads. I wish I could. Uh, I am working on number 27, actually. Um, I actually do have it started. Um, and because it always works better is months from now when you sit down not to a blank screen. Because one of the ways I keep it at number 26, as you said, I keep the voice strong and fresh and keep the, keep the energy good, is that at the end of one book, I will write the end, and then I will open another file, and I will write next to Nita Blake novel, and I will, while the voice is strong and fresh as it ever gets, I will write the, at least notes for the next book, ideas and things I'm thinking of that maybe for the next book, so that when I sit down months and months later, I'm not staring at a blank screen, and I already have something to find the pump. Perfect. Well, hey, we want to thank you. We're going to let you go. We want to thank you so much for just spending, you know, this half hour with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to talk with you. Eight years is too long. We can't let it go on as long before we chat again. We can't do that. We're going to do this again. This has been fun. And I could go on for another hour and a half. We could just keep talking because about books and just anything in general um, because we have such good conversations. So, Thank you so much yeah. again for joining us. It has been a pleasure. Hopefully, I'll see you on August the 6th. And congratulations, August the 7th. The book is out. People can pre-order it now wherever they buy books or whatever format they want to buy it. It's available. Well, thank you so much, Sean. It was it was a pleasure, and I uh, hope to see you at Huntington Beach on the 6th. Absolutely. You enjoy it. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So there you go, everybody. Laurel K. Hamilton, The Book of Serpentine. It is out on August the 7th, and so if you're listening to it now, go pre-order the book. So until next time, we will see you all. Like we like to say, keep reading. Talk to you soon. Bye.